I want to invite you to turn now to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Um, as when we got into the book of Revelation, and, and my wife and I were just discussing this yesterday, um, we got into the book of the Revelation, there is so much uh, imagery created around the events of the book of the Revelation that it is difficult to weed through um, what is actual Bible and what is creative retelling. Um, and and we're in one of those passages that is like that. It, it's a moment... And so uh, there's there's less. I'm gonna I'm gonna warn you ahead of time. I'm just gonna go ahead and warn you ahead of time as I get into this. There is less practical stuff today. Um, this this is not a message about and therefore you can do this, be this, say this, but rather it's just an image. Um, sometimes the most powerful things in the world are images. Um, they they and and. Sometimes that's all we need. And so hopefully I can paint an image for you that will be in your head, um, that will maybe even supplant some things that you read in some terrible book by Tim LaHaye. I'm not going to mention. Um, uh, just not very well written. Sorry, guys. Prose was not fantastic. Um, but, uh, um, but the, uh, and hopefully we can, we can see some, some of what was going on um, in what John was seeing in the book of the Revelation. So I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 20 with me. If you're visiting with us, you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. The page number is uh, in the bulletin, uh, or reasonably close. Um, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we have been through chapter 19, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked about how the righteous are gathered and the wicked will surround them to attack. And then we have this image of heaven opening and one who sits on the white horse, which is Christ, coming to receive her bride and to, um, to deal with all those that would damage and destroy her. Um, somewhat of a parallel, uh, there's a lot of different interpretational arguments about what's going on in chapter 20. I'm not going to get into those. Uh, but in chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, the bottomless pit, the abyss, all right, the Greek word is abyss. Um, and uh, if, you, if you know anything about word etymologies, A on the beginning of a word generally means not um, or, or there is not. Uh, it's a contradiction. So a theist is somebody who believes in God, the Greek word theos. So a theist is somebody that believes in God. An atheist is, a, is somebody who believes in no God, does not believe in God. Um, a, um, somebody who is moral is somebody who lives according to uh, certain um, moral codes. Somebody who is amoral, therefore, is somebody who is not moral. Well, the Greek word bethos, it means the bottom of the ocean. All right, so uh, abyss, abyssos, means without a bottom. All right, that's what it means. And so that's why it's translated as bottomless pit. But that's what abyss means. Uh, the, the notion of the abyss comes from sailors on the Mediterranean Sea um, because the Mediterranean, if you've ever seen the Mediterranean, it it's, uh, doesn't look anything like the Atlantic. Uh, it's a very different kind of, uh, of ocean. Um, and when they're sailing, they can usually find the bottom. And so at this time, because you were dealing with wooden ships, usually rowed by, by slaves or something, um, square sails, you stayed pretty close to land. You always wanted to be within eyesight of land by nightfall. 
Um, and so you were somewhere you knew where the bottom was. But if you were to sail out into the middle of the ocean, there are a number of deep sea channels in the Mediterranean where the continental plates um, separate and what creates the sea, and those are abysoid, right? Hoi abysoid, the, the, the bottomless places. There is no bottom. If your ship sinks there, nobody's going to get your stuff. It is the end. And, um, and Paul actually describes him being in, uh, in the water at one point, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he describes the, the, the bethos, the being in the bottomed ocean. So it, we know that when he was shipwrecked, he was shipwrecked relatively close to land. Um, it's kind of one of those one of those little language things. Anyway, so he has the key to the bottomless pit. Now the abyss, and the abyss was opened in Revelation chapter nine. Um, this this bottomless pit, this abyss was opened in Revelation chapter nine, and the destroyer Abaddon or Apollyon, these, both of these names appear, is released from the abyss, from this bottomless pit. Well, now we have the inversion of that. Uh, if you've been with us, the book of Revelation, the rule of twos. If there's two of something, they're connected. And here we have the return of the abyss into our imagery. And in this case, we have an angel going down to the abyss, holding in his hands the key and a great chain, and he seized the dragon. Now, if you've been reading the book of the Revelation and were unsure about who the dragon was, John now leaves absolutely no question. The dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan. So this is the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 who tempted Eve. He is the, uh, the accuser. That's what, uh, the, that's what devil means, the accuser. Um, and he is Satan. He is the enemy. All right. So this is describing the evil one. And bound him for a thousand years. Everybody argues whether it's a little th literal thousand years or a uh, metaphorical thousand years and I'm going to let them argue over in a corner by themselves. We've got more important things to do. Um, and threw him into a pit, into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and after that he will, must be released for a little while. So we have this idea of Satan, um, the deceit of the world, the deceiver of the world, being bound for a thousand years so everybody wants to get into all of the chronology of all this but what's important here that we need to catch with this is that this is an act of god to remove the active power of evil on earth the great deceiver the deception of mankind so in other words it is the removal of the ability to blame someone else if you remember in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, um, when, when man sins and God comes and starts talking to him, he says to man, he says, he says, what did you do? And he says, the woman made me do it. And then he says to the woman, what did you do? And she said, the serpent made me do it. And the serpent went, eh, it was me. Well, man's tendency in our wickedness and our evil is to blame, our, blame somebody else, to blame something else. Well, yeah, I know he did something wrong, but, but um, you know, there's a, there's a reason that he did it. And if you just understood the reason, you know what? Sometimes evil is just evil. There's no explaining it. It's evil. And sometimes maliciousness is just maliciousness. It's just humanity. It's just who we are, all right? 
Um, I, I, I mean, I grew, up in a, I grew up in a house with two sisters. I love my sisters. But there were moments when if there was a way to blame me for something they had done, they were going to find a way because they knew that I was, you know, just going to take it. I was infamous for just taking it. I was not a tattletale. My dad told me not to be a tattletale. I took it literally. Did your sister do this? I'm going to punish you if you don't tell me. Kind of a conflict of interest, right? Tell your kid not to be a tattler and then ask him if your sister did something. You know? I figured I was tougher than them. I could take the paddles and that's what I did. Um, except for my little sister. I tended to let her just just take it. She deserved it. Um, but but we, you know, we, we tend to shuff off the blame and say, well, you know, oh, maybe the devil made him do it or... or Oh, she was, she, was, she was just tempting him to the point that he just, he couldn't resist. Or, or oh, you know, it's not his fault. He just, you know, he has a problem. And, and, and so we, we love to shuffle off blame. So what's happening here is God removes the deceiver so that all is left is the evil that's within the heart of man. Right? So there's not an active uh, accuser of Satan, right? Verse 4, then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I, I saw, and this is, this is actually not judgment as in right or wrong, but judgment as an evaluation like an Olympic judging kind of thing. Um, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest did not of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now this, this verse depicts the church. As we've talked about, as we've gone through this, this um, looking at uh, what's happening in the Revelation, we've seen that the, it is both, uh, the, the Revelation depicts both what was and what is and what shall be. Um, what is happening now has happened before and it will happen again until. So we're now at the until, until the end of things. And in this moment, all of the righteous, the church, are resurrected and they are judged not whether they are righteous or unrighteous because they are all righteous, but they are judged um, they're, they're uh, welcomed into the celebration, you might say. That's the best way to, to put this kind of a definition. Um, and, and what's happening then is therefore they are all gathering. And the depiction of their gathering is actually depicted next, all right? But they are the first that are resurrected. All the righteous are resurrected here, all right? You'll see no reference to the unrighteous. This is all the believers, the faithful who are resurrected here. The rest will wait, okay? So the rest wait, that's what he says, all right? And they serve for a thousand years. Then in verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, this is a, a look back to the book of Ezekiel, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, or the city of the beloved. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, 
where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what we have, right, all the righteous gather, um, and they gather at Jerusalem. Um, now this is something that John, that's what the beloved city means, that's, that's Jerusalem. Um, this is happening on earth, okay? This is not something happening in heaven. This is something happening on earth. And on earth, in Jerusalem, the beloved city, all of the righteous have gathered, all right, for a thousand years. Now, if you remember the passage that we read from Isaiah chapter 65, it describes this setting, all right? It describes the, the presence, if you go back and you look at it, the people at my holy mountain. It doesn't say over all, all the world. It just says at my holy mountain. Um, elsewhere, Isaiah describes a highway that runs through Assyria and runs through Egypt and runs to the end of the world where the righteous will, will journey along the highway. Uh, the Hebrew word is masal. Uh, they, will, they will journey along this highway to come to Jerusalem to worship God. So there is a gathering of the righteous and the, the, the description is that they are camped. If you read the, the um, statement in verse 9, they surrounded, this is talking about the unrighteous, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So they are encamped on the mountains around Jerusalem. Now this is something that John would have been very familiar with on a smaller scale. Because three times a year there are what are called the Shalosh Regalim. Um, the Shalosh Regalim are the pilgrimage feasts. Uh, they are uh, Passover, Pentecost, and um, uh, Tabernacles, Shavuot. Uh, Shabbat, uh, Pasha, Pasha, Shavuot, and a third one that starts with S that I can't remember because my brain is fried. And you don't care anyway. Anyway, um, these, these three feasts, all Jews, in the Levitical law, all Jews were commanded to go to Jerusalem for those days. So what would happen on those three days is that all of the righteous or most of the righteous would gather at Jerusalem. Well, obviously, they don't have houses in Jerusalem. Now today, how many of you have ever... You, you guys have all seen pictures of Jerusalem, right? The Dome of the Rock and all that stuff. Today, Jerusalem is a city of about 1.2 million people. Um, it's a relatively large city. Um, it's not huge, but it's not small either. Back in this day, the, the everyday population of, is, of, of Jerusalem was, was probably less than 100,000 people. But when the pilgrimages happened, Josephus records that when the pilgrimages happened, the city would swell to well over a million people. Now imagine the infrastructure required to do that. Imagine if, imagine if uh, you know, three times a year, a place like Hudson absorbed 1.5 million people. All right? Suddenly they all just, obviously they got to spread out. They got to camp out. They got to live around the area. One of the places, by the way, that they lived was Bethlehem. All right? People would camp outside of Bethlehem. There was a well there, so there was water there. But they would spread out over the mountains, over the Mount of Olive and over Mount Zion, and they would, they would just spread out over all the mountains. They'd be camped. And you'd, the priests get up in the morning and go to the top of the temple to, to proclaim the beginning of the morning, and they'd just look out over this huge camping of million people. Well, this obviously is much bigger than that. Um, because the righteous number greater than one million. But this is what he sees. He sees this, this, this camp that just goes on as far as you can see of all the righteous around the beloved city. 
And then after the thousand years, Satan is released. He goes and everybody who has not gathered, who live on the four corners, Gog and Magog are a figure of speech for the furthest kingdoms you could possibly imagine. All right? Um, and I think, I'm going to have to look it up. I could be wrong. But basically the idiom, is, idiom roughly correlates to the United, to, in English to uh, far away and really far away. Right? That's kind of what, he's, what this idea is. Without number, they descend across the broad plain of the earth. This, this idea of they're just going to be able to cross the earth. And they come to surround the camp of the righteous and the beloved city. Now what happens next in the text goes against everything I envisioned the book of the Revelation as after years as a preacher's kid. But when you read it, this is really what happens. So this is just the text. Look at what it says. Verse, verse 9, they marched up over the broad planet earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What happens in that moment in John's vision? The unrighteous surround the camp of the righteous and fire erupts from the heavens and literally everything that isn't the camp of the righteous and the city is consumed in fire and becomes a lake of fire and brimstone. Lest you think I'm imagining this, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Where is that throne? Well, we like to think it's in heaven, but look at the narrative. It doesn't say it's in heaven. It just says, I saw a great white throne. And him who seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky away. Now I think at this moment John's vision of the universe starts to get really hazy. As heaven and earth mingle. They've mingled the whole time. So the actual location of this is not as important as the fact that it's in the presence, it's in the middle of this gathered camp. This beloved city. And all of earth and sky simply dissipates. And all that is left, the city, the people, and fire. All that is left is God in His temple and His people. And all else is destroyed. 
I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to what he had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was cast or thrown into the lake of fire. All is destroyed. The way that I learned this as a kid was this idea of there's this throne somewhere and God is this faceless cartoon character sitting on the throne and everybody's lined up, millions and millions of people or billions and billions of people are lined up and they're watching TV versions of their lives and there's somebody over there with a book checking their names to see if they're on the list. But here's the thing. The righteous have already been judged. There's no deciding who's on the list or who isn't on it. There's nobody left to check to see if they're on the list. This is the resurrection of the unrighteous. The book of life is already full. It's already completed. Those who are in the book of the life have already been resurrected and have already been with the Lord. And those who are not, they're cast out. What is, has been, and will be until. There comes an end to the wrath of God. His grace and mercy is bounded. And this is hard for us to get. We don't like this idea. But there is an end. There is a condemnation for the unrighteous. And it is horrible. There is a division between the righteous and the unrighteous. And it is palpably terrible. Heaven and earth will flee. Creation itself will be on fire. And the judge comes. I don't know about you, but that's scary. That's big. This idea of the gathering of the righteous and then everything else is consumed in fire. Everything else becomes it. Now, and when he describes this, this lake of, of, of fire and brimstone, again, there's this, there's this hazing of this kind of eternal place of torment and this thing he's seeing in his vision of the earth burning. There, there, there's, there's, there's all of this, is, is, it's jumbled together. And John is trying desperately to explain it. But human language doesn't convey necessarily what he's seeing. But what we need to draw out of this is that there is an end. There is an upper limit to the grace of God. I don't like that. I like to think that God, He will forgive anything, anybody, anytime. But this is how the book ends. With the judgment of the unrighteous. 
And this has been a part of the Christian creed since the beginning. The Apostle Paul, one of the earliest letters he writes um, are his letters to the Thessalonians. They're written in 40, 45 A.D., only 15 years or so after Christ has died, and he's already talking about this. He's already talking about the judgment. We don't like it. I don't like it. We don't want to talk about it. It's scary. It's nasty. I don't like to think about this. But understand what it really is. Understand what this judgment really is. With the deceiver gone for a thousand years, mankind still is destroyed by its evil. It's consumed. Those who are not followers of Christ are consumed. And God cannot allow it. He would, he literally has in the book of the Revelation moved heaven and earth for man to come to him. But there is an end. Just as there was a beginning in Genesis chapter 1, there will be an end. Now the extraordinary thing about this, I think, is that the vision doesn't end here. We go on into chapter 21. We need to realize this about our God. He is forgiving, but that does not mean justice goes unnoticed, uncounted, unregistered. He is compassionate and graceful, but he is still judge. And he is still king. And when all who come will come, have come, there is an end. This story does not go on forever. This world will burn. And so we not only have a responsibility to do the work of the gospel, there should be a burden upon us recognizing that living in the end times, there is something coming. And it is terrible and it is horrible. Now people can argue about how the mechanics of it all works and I don't really in, not interested in that. But what John saw was a motivating vision for the church to rise to its job and its task. Because in the end, all that will stand, of all that has been created and all that has been, the only thing that will stand, the only people that will stand, are those who are in Christ. You see, that's, that's so divisive, that's so exclusionary, that's, that's so intolerant. Those of you know my response to that. This is what the scriptures say. And I have to submit what I would want to what they say. Theologians have tried for 
centuries to explain away this imagery. But if we take it literally, this is what we see. There is an end. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to be your church, and that is an enormous responsibility. We like all the good parts about it, the easy parts of it. We like the parts where we we sing and we fellowship. It's not so easy to like the parts that don't fit with our culture and our thinking. Our own standards of belief. Maybe John had the same problem and you had to shock him. But I know I struggle with this. I know I don't like this part. Lord, help us to accept your word as it is. To be your people in your place. No matter how hard it is. In Jesus' name.